Kia ora Aotearoa, Robert Hollis here and welcome to Robert Live on Today FM. I hope your week is rockin'. I hope everything is charging away. I'll tell you about my week. It's been pretty flippin' epic. I've been, I've, I've got, a, I've actually got a new, um, a new Apple iWatch. This is not a sponsored plug for Apple, but I've swapped it out from a Fitbit and I'm liking a lot more. It's tracking my steps, it's doing my eating, it's giving me some times and I can, why I actually like it, and before we even get into this, is I can do instant little reminders through Siri on my watch and see how to get my phone out. So it's making things. So I feel more productive. I'm feeling a bit more effective. I'm feeling like I'm just a little bit more on top of things. Thanks to a little bit of technology that's making my life a little bit easier. And speaking of making it easy, let's make it easy for you today for understanding what, see my segue there, see what I did there, uh, into what the show Rebet Live is about. Well, we've been over 300 episodes now. We talked to a whole bunch of amazing different people talking about, uh, kind of this intersection of three things we always talk about it of community and commerce and, and culture and you know a bit of creativity sprinkled in there amongst the mix and and uh and so much more on today's show we have gary gordon gary gordon is the managing director for, at solution street and so he comes from the world of real estate of residential property and understand how this whole world works and obviously in a market like aotearoa new zealand housing is right up at the top of the list when it comes to pretty much anything where most of people's money's going and more so we're going to be asking him about how we get into it a bit of the behind the scenes of the world of real estate and so much more don't forget if you uh just uh, wherever you're at with your phone and if you're out and about uh, you can download the rover app to get rebet live um through there or you can just simply go to um your itunes or your podcast or spotify wherever it is that you get your podcast and type in hashtag rebet live and be able to subscribe there uh, new episodes coming out every week and you can check in the mix all right so without further ado ladies and gentlemen gary gordon the managing director at solution street Rock and roll. Morena, Gary, how are you, my friend? Good, thanks. Yeah, welcome. Up here um, in uh, Tacoma in Auckland. There you go. Hey, so let's 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 break the cherry first here. Is this officially your first full feature length big time interview on the mainstream? Is this am I am I the lucky one to crack the Gary Gordon code? It is. Finally I've been discovered. I've been waiting a while, <laughs> 40, 47 years to be discovered. But um, yeah, I'm finally being found, and um, I'm sure this is going to be the first of many. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe, maybe I've got an influencer uh, career out there yet. Hey, I'm, t- I'm telling you, all you need is to go a bit more bald, wear a little hat with the G on it, and then you're already there. You got the uniform dialed, mate. You got the the, gla- the glasses, the hat. The, I mean, you're you're set. You're like eighty percent there. Well, I, I even may know some people that run some influencer marketing agencies. We could we could do something about this. We can we can definitely do something about this. No, I um I definitely appreciate uh, time when I was I was telling you before we came on, uh, in New Zealand particularly when it comes to you know the economy, there's the media stuff, there's this, that, that, and there's it's so much of the core of the average Kiwi story is housings and home and and being warmth and dry and have a safe place to live and whatever. And so whenever we get to a chance to speak to smart people on the show with Rebecca Live here, um, I'm always intrigued when there's people that are really entrenched in different industries, which I am not in, and and really use the time to be able to dig into spots where, you know, on my, on my wrist, I've got this little wristband that says learn, share, repeat. And it's a simple idea of, who can I get access to that knows a lot about something which that other people want to know about and how then I share that on with others. And especially with housing in particular, with Aotearoa in particular, there's a very massive crossover between 
the housing market, residential space, and and houses. So I'm very uh, interested and stoked to be able to talk to you today. So I appreciate appreciate that. So starting off, maybe let's let's go here for a second, Gary. So 22, 23, at a macro, if you if you were to put your life's journey in a tweet for 47 years to be discovered to make it to this point here, how would you describe your journey to date in a tweet? Journey to date, um, probably a roller coaster ride of, of property cycles and uh, and deals, property cycles and deal doing over the last 20 years on my own, uh, you know, under my own company, and a few years before that. So yeah, it's been it's big highs, big lows, um, and not too much cruising in the middle. <laughs> Just now, like a is it, but it's fair to say that the roller coaster through one pathway of of um, of real estate, it's definitely not like day to day trading on the stock exchange. You, it, it feels like there's longer. There'll be years of awesomeness, years of bad years. It, it feels like the the cycles are. It's a longer roller coaster. Let's say. Let's maybe it's more. Is it a generational roller coaster? It's definitely more of a a longer tail thing. If you were to give advice to your earlier self when you were starting the roller coaster ride, would patience be right up the, the top there of, of skill sets which you may need to, to survive? Or how would you uh, how would you put your skill sets required to be able to have sustainability for the long game in such a generational industry like real estate? Yeah, I think you you definitely need to have a long term mindset, you know, growth mindset, and keep thinking about all the things that you're learning and how you're going to apply those when things get good again, you know, if it's in the bad times, but, um, and just, you know, keep your um, wits about you, you know, in those good times to make sure that you're squirreling a bit away or that you're kind of protecting um, yourself, you know, because, you know, knowing that it's going to come around at some point that the cycle's going to, you know, change in some direction. Um, yeah. And I mean, I've, I've found, you know, more recently a lot of value in finding out, of what my strengths are and where my personality sits so that i you know i don't overreact or i don't um take the wrong path you know when these things kind of happen um and and i also you know rely and heavily on other people and their strengths you know making sure that um at the right time i bring them in to kind of steady my ship or or give me advice um to make sure that because, you know, I think knowing knowing about yourself is kind of the most important thing to kind of know how, you know, why and how you're reacting or where your skills are to be able to, you know, pull things together. Um, yeah, so I, I do, that's the thing that I've kind of learned more recently that I think if I had known about myself when I was younger, I probably would have done things differently and relied on different people for other things where I thought I knew Maybe I thought I knew too much, or even maybe I thought I had skills that were wider than maybe I actually do in reality. So well, I, yeah, I that's think it's it's a good self awareness piece to think about it because the reality is most uh, most especially in the twenties, like you know I've talked talk about a bunch in early twenties. You, you want to be rah rah take on the world, you know everything, stuff everyone else. And one of my uh, biggest regrets in life that I've been asked about before is I talk about this um, life regrettage percentage where. I think I would have got to where I was at 30 by the time I was 27, but I had too much ego and arrogance in my early 20s thinking I could do everything myself because I was the flipping man, stuff everybody, I'm awesome. And then what I realized is I actually lost three years, but I would, so I, at 30, I felt like I had a, 
it's a weird way to think about it, Gary, but I think of it like I had a life regrettage percentage of 10% at 30 years old because I'd lost three years. But I said, it's like, you know what? I'd rather learn my lesson at 30 and have a 10% life regrettage percentage than being, say, 50 or 60 doing something I hated or whatever for, for the last 30 years. And then all of a sudden I've got a life regrettage percentage of 50% and I'm 50 or 60, I'm kind of stuffed, you know? So though I think about time a little bit differently, but I, I don't think I've ever met an alpha or someone that's done well that has been really awesome at that in their twenties. <laughs> and I think that comes, that probably comes with growth. Yeah. It probably no. comes with growth. So, so, so to that, maybe on the, on the emotion side, uh, houses are very emotional. I know, I know a house is a thing, but people's emotions that get tied up into this thing are very emotional with it. Right. What have yeah. you, uh, what's the most interesting thing you've noticed about, human beings in your real in your world with real estate when it comes to emotions what have you noticed the most yeah i mean hmm. i suppose we with our with our purpose you know being improving lives through home ownership um for our company we 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 look a lot more holistically at a house than than maybe the the headline media which says how's it gone up how's it gone down you know we actually look at the value of a home you know well beyond financial and and so you know we see the emotional benefit of a home for example you know in just community you know or self-confidence you know or um you know stability so we've we've you know we we think it's it's sometimes hijacked a bit you know talking about housing as if it's you know the stock exchange or whatever but you know we do really think that new zealand inc would do better if there was more people that owned their own homes um you know, and we could reverse that trend because, you know, that, you know, that, um, and we've seen it so many times, just, you know, people's, uh, you know, they're elated when they get their own home, you know, we've seen people, um, you know, really sad stories where people couldn't live with their children, you know, in their living environment, but when, when they got their new home, suddenly they're allowed their children living with them, which is just, you know, such an emotional thing for us to go on with them. Um, for them to ring us up and say, oh, I can have my kids living with me again. It's like, I can't even imagine that, you know, um, for for someone else. So, yeah, so we see the benefits well beyond the financial benefits. Obviously, the market goes up and down. You make some money, you lose some money, whatever might happen. But, you know, we see it as a as a real long-term um, benefit with, you know, health. Obviously, our new housing is better than probably most people are flatting. Our customers are flatting and, you know, old houses with you know mold and, and in fact we run a little competition once and said send us photos of your mold in your bathroom to our prospects you know because they're all living in flats that weren't that weren't that livable you know but you know you've got the standards are so high now for our new housing that you get a much healthier home you know it's warmer it's cheaper living etc but then you know you you feel like you've achieved something and then you know we also try and link all our buyers to the community you know into the you know within the building we've seen people you know, start netball teams and have pub nights and all this with their community and their building where, you know, they build a whole new, you know, bunch of connections um, and they can, that, that can support them through whatever might be going on. Obviously, we've had interesting times over the last few years where it's not such a bad thing, you know, to know your neighbours. And a lot of our customers know our neighbours better than I know my own neighbours, um, you know, because we've we've built that and, and included that in kind of what we do. So, yeah, so I think emotionally it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, there's so much more to housing than just the sort of the numbers is kind of the way that we approach it. 
um, if that answers the question. No, 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 but it's a, it's a, it's a good point, Gary, because most people that would look or engage within it probably feel quite transactional about about these things and it's clear that you think of it more as relationships and people and it's not often that people within a sector that feel or, or act so transactionally to be actually around partnerships or relationships which is a, a not only a point of difference but it's it's not i guess common that you'd usually see so rewinding back a little bit where did the where did the passion for property actually come in and what took you was there a moment that sent you on a path into this world of of real estate if there was, what was the moment? Yeah, I mean, I always enjoyed building stuff, you know. So, you know, when I was five or six, I'd come home from school and mum and dad were building a house and and the builder let me help him, which was, I'm sure, no help at all to him. Um, but, you know, he'd, he'd show me how to cut something or build something or whatever. And, and that was, you know, when I was, you know, when I was at primary school. So I really enjoyed that kind of stuff. And I did build a lot of things when I was younger. But... Um, and I probably would have really liked to be an architect, but I really just didn't think I had enough design flair or, or creativity to kind of um, to be that. So I ended up training as a quantity surveyor um, and going to Unitech and doing a, a bachelor degree there. Um, and so, you know, that was combining my skills of sort of maths and drawing and kind of logical stuff without needing too much of the of the arts, really. Um, and I always knew I wanted to be in property or, you know, in that kind of, um, property development area. So I'm not sure kind of what triggered it, but I, I ended up working for builders and and sort of uh, main contractors like Main Zealand Can-Am and those kind of guys as a QS, but seeing these developers coming in with these deals that we're building for them and wanting to know how, how did they get the money? You know, they didn't have the money. So how did they get the money or how did they sell it? Or, you know, how did, how did it all come about? And so eventually I went and worked for a, um, a developer in Auckland doing apartments and for a couple of years and that gave me the, all of the answers um, I had the construction experience, but then I picked up the marketing and the sales and the planning and finance kind of side of things that I was short on. And then um, that gave me the the final sort of things I needed to be able to go out and do it on my own. Well, it's, it's about, a very... So, yeah. And the, yeah. the skill set for all of that, though, it's a very... Um, you need a lot of different things to get good, right? <laughs> like you need... Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, in, you know, it's it's a very interesting industry in that in some level there's kind of no barriers to entry, you know, like any, you know, there's a lot of car dealers that become developers or or real estate agents or, or you know, so it, it it is a kind of a weird industry in that it's not like you need to be certified or qualified in any kind of thing. So, but but, you know, having a mix of all those skills and understanding all of that at the same time is kind of what you need to do you need to be able to kind of pick a whole lot of things and you know and kind of run with with something that fits right down the middle sort of thing got it yeah. uh, for those who just listen in uh we'll be at live on today fm and i'm speaking with gary gordon the managing director at solution street so when this concept started for solution street how did you think about its different differentiation in the marketplace that would be authentic to you and also uh, valuable enough for all those that actually needed it. What was the thought process there? Because it's obviously been a pretty awesome journey, but there would have been a spot where you realise there's a lot of transactional players in this marketplace. I am not that. How, what was that journey like of start, starting that up and, and, and getting down this this road? Yeah, I mean, probably we need to go back a little bit. Like, 
you know, at the beginning for the first 15 years, we did a whole bunch of other things um, under my previous brand, which was Legacy Property. And so we, you know, there we've done subdivisions and, you know, big subdivisions, big apartment buildings in Christchurch and houses in Wellington and all over the show. But it was really, I was sitting, I was sitting down, I had a, used to have a beach place down at Mount Maunganui and I was sitting down there in the holidays and, and everyone was talking about how it was impossible to get a house, you know, uh, for a first home buyer. And I was like, I just spent a few days and I'm like, well, you know, we have the resources, we have the money, we have the skills, you know, let's, why don't we actually look at whether it is actually impossible? Like, what are the people talking about here? seems to me that you know it's got to be there's got to be a path and so that kind of triggered it i started looking on trade me at some land and i started kind of researching some of the planning and this was the time when the unitary plan was coming into auckland which was a big trigger to help with this affordability so we looked at how you know i started looking at how we could what we could fit on and and then we we sent out some you know we started early days with social media and we sent out some things saying you know, if you could buy this house for, you know, five ninety nine, would would you want it kind of thing? We, we didn't, you know, we just grabbed someone else's house and kind of sent it out and said, would you like this, you know? And we got some people back. Um, and, and funnily enough, one of the guys who answered, like, right back in the early day, he actually ended up buying a house off us in Glen Eden a couple of years later. So, you know, it did sort of pay off. But so we started thinking, how can we, how can we sort of use all our skills to, to do what everyone thought was impossible, which clearly wasn't because, you know, we went on to sell lots of houses and help lots of people. So it was really a combination of things. It was using the unitary plan. In those days, we wanted to try and build offsite our modular prefab, which we did start doing, but we've actually moved away from that because of kind of logistics and, and a few other problems along the way, um, which didn't quite work. But we did do probably the most housing offsite manufactured anyone sort of done, but we did move back to building it on site. Um, selling ourselves, so we, we've had our in-house sales team because we wanted to be connected with the customer. We didn't want to be, uh, you know, a transactional like an agent. You know, if you don't sell this house, you don't eat, sort of thing. So, um, as an agent, so we we you know our guys were on salary, so they could work with people. We knew that it was going to take time. There was going to be coaching and direction with our customers, so we built that into our model. Um, yeah, so that, that was all the kind of things we brought together. But really, from a sort of branding and idea point of view, it was really about control. That was the thing that we really hooked into. You know, when you rent a house, you're not really in control of your life. You, you can be out on the street, you know, in, in a few months' time. And suddenly you've got to take your kids to a different school. You've got to, you know, a whole bunch of things kind of flow off the back of that you've got to find somewhere. And obviously there's costs of moving and all that kind of stuff. And, you, you know, you may not be able to have a cat or a dog or, you know, you, you may not be able to, you know, there's there's many things that, that when you're renting, you may not have the entire control of your life. Whereas when you have your own home, you know, you take back some of that control and obviously you can only do it within your means, but it just means that you can, you can actually make the decisions, not somebody else who's telling you the rent's going up or whatever might happen to you, or you've got to move out, you know, some of our people, whilst we're building their homes, they've have, had to move four times, you know, because landlords decide to sell their properties or whatever. So, you know, um, so it was all about our kind of mission was really about take back control of your life, buy your own house and get all these other benefits. And we were going to use all these tools, the unitary plan, modular kind of our sales team to work together with people um, and sort of build people 
on a long-term sort of plan, you know. So we we see people in our database, they might take two years. You know, they come along to us. We sort of say, come and have a look at the house. We know you can't afford it, but that doesn't matter. We still want to talk to you. They come into our showroom, uh, our show home, and then we say, oh, you, you maybe, you know, start saving some money in your KiwiSaver or maybe talk to this broker. Depending on what level of, of purchasing they're at, we just want to help them and coach them. And, and, and a lot of the time they ring up and say, hey, thanks, guys, I bought this house off someone else. But that's fine. We don't we don't care about that. You know, we, we can only do so many houses. So, you know, so they um, and then they still send their friends to see us, you know, because we've helped. them. So, um, yeah, so we brought all those things together and, and managed to produce in those days a, a very attainable, affordable house, you know, which, which, you know, obviously the market's a little different now. But, you know, we had, you know, well more people lining up than we had you know, the properties that we could produce um, in those times. And and we just had a nerve there where there really wasn't anyone sort of looking after those people. Um, and what you've seen over the years is now the bank saying we love first-home buyers and all these other things coming out of the woodwork, realising that, you know, it's still quite a big part of the market, you know, 25% of the market or something is still people buying their first home, according to some, you know, stats. So, yeah, so that's kind of, I don't know if that answers the that kind of thing yeah that's that's sort of how we got into it and and realized that we you know we get a buzz out of this stuff it's actually you know like it, it re it's rewarding from that point of view to see people come and actually get the benefit and the value and sort of move on move to that next stage of their life or whatever with um buying a home so yeah so when you were in, in the mountain you were thinking about um you know, you get feedback saying it's impossible to do it, and you went and looked at it. Did what was the key differentiator when you thought about the process of what you could offer the market compared to what currently existed? Was there something that really stood out as as a point point of difference between how it was done to how you think it could be done? What was the sort of ninja move or secret sauce in there that that make things work for Solution Street? Yeah, well, I think that on the on the planning building side of it, it really was just getting that density and and getting the housing. You know the affordable price you know getting that sort of um headline price down so that people could get in um which which was always sort of going to happen every over time you know that market just sort of took off once everyone got on the the unitary plan and the density bandwagon but at the at the time there wasn't there wasn't two bedroom houses around for five hundred thousands you know there just wasn't that stock um because of the previous planning regimes so we sort of got in early on that um but then you know it's it's now across the board um and then on probably on the on the sales side you know it was really that a long-term sales view so we you know we we could take people and we had you know we had um thousands of people in our database but we still have um you know and we could actually look after them and sort of nurture them to get to where they wanted to go because we didn't we didn't have a rush we, we weren't having to transact with them this week you know we could just wait it out for them and and you know and as i say sometimes two years away so we could just be patient with them and and they saw that as um more trusting you know they they actually became trusting of our transaction yeah, yeah exactly. and they wanted to be on they wanted to be on with us you know and they'd wait for us to launch something so that they could get one of ours sort of thing so but you've brought up um, a couple of times, Gary, this unitary plan. Is the sweet spot the fact that for those that aren't aware, do you want to give a quick uh, top line of what the unitary plan is, was, and how that actually shifted and changed things? 
Yeah, so if you look at the statistics, you know, it's not back until the 70s or so when we were building a lot of two-bedroom and one-bedroom houses and the, the brick flats, the kind of French and iron flats and, and those sorts of blocks where there was a lot of smaller house stock actually built. But what happened uh, through the planning regime is we ended up with this rule that said one house needed to sit on 400 square metres of land. So if you had 400 square metres of land, why would you build a two-bedroom house? it made no sense you know you'd go and build a three or four or five bedroom house so that meant that the the actual stock at the two bedroom level was basically reducing so you know so an entry level house um wasn't really there you know like for until the sort of apartments became popular later on but there was this gap where you know unless you know why would you build one two bedroom house on 400 square meters when you can do something bigger so it just it sort of just buggered up the economics um and so you you saw all these bigger houses getting built and and they weren't necessarily satisfying that entry level house not everyone can start with this biggest you know the, the mcmansion so um you know so the unitary plan basically got rid of that and we'd already seen this in christchurch so we'd been developing in christchurch under their plan and their plan was sort of ahead of auckland really and they had no density as long as you could prove you met all the requirements you could build as many apartments and we did on this land down there as as possible and then auckland kind of followed with the unitary plan which reset the planning for auckland and basically allowed you know um no limit on density as long as you can meet all the standards that were required um you know outlook and height relation to boundary etc then you could you could basically put as many as you wanted um and that makes a huge difference. Like when you think about one piece of land, you know, um, that the, the, you know, it's sort of just numbers, really, the more times you can divide it up, the, the cheaper the, the land component cost of that, um, you know, of that cost for that unit. So, you know, when we're taking sites, like we're just finishing 31 houses in Mangali Bridge, you know, that's about a 4000 square meter site, you know, and we've got 31 on there. So, you know, there would have been 10 in the old days, maybe nine with driveways. Um, and here we are getting, you know, three times that density, which basically means the land is kind of like a third of the value. Maybe there's a, maybe the land price has gone up a bit because it's a bit more value, you know, because you can do that now. But it just shows you how it can work. Um, and by building these, you know, smaller, obviously the houses, they aren't massive, you know, compact house, but it's meant to be a starter home. You know, this is meant to be, you kicking off with your first home. And I think what, what that's going to allow us to do over, over the future is actually we want to get people into housing earlier, you know, like younger. Mm. We want people to be coming out of uni and then working for a bit and their KiwiSavers there and the government gives them a bit of a grant and then they can actually buy a house, you know, younger. So Because we've actually seen that the first-home buyer transfer to, you know, age transfer out a bit to, to quite, you know, quite an quite older than you actually think if you average the first home buyer age it what would be a numbers? lot later than you think yeah whereas we'd really like to drive that back you know so we want to we want to start sort of educating kids at school to start thinking about buying a home you know so get you know when you're working a part-time job you should still have your KiwiSaver going there because you can use a KiwiSaver to buy a house there's only two things you can use KiwiSaver for buy a house or when you're 65 so start putting that away when you're working at McDonald's and then you've got a better chance of actually um, you know, buying a home when you're 25 rather than 35, you know, which is probably what we're seeing at the moment, the average. So I was looking on your uh, your LinkedIn and it had the London Business School in there. When did you go and what did you learn and how did it change your perspective on 
business, life, and more? Yeah, that's a great question. I need, yeah, I need to kind of explain the context of that. So um, about seven years ago, I joined um, Entrepreneurs Organization, which is a uh, yeah, worldwide yeah, yeah. EO, worldwide organization of about 15,000 people now. And, um, and it's, it's all, the premise of EO is, is learning, right? So it's shared experience, learning through shared experience. So, um, so I've done a lot of learning with that, um, including, you know, Singularity University type stuff and San Fran and other type things. But, um, but London Business School is part of that. So, um, wow. yeah, so they, every year they offer three sort of um, programs, one's at MIT, um, one's at Harvard, and one's at London Business School. So, um, so that was a couple of years ago I went there. And so that's 60, it's limited to 60 entrepreneurs so it's, it's a basically like a little joint venture kind of thing between EO and London Business School just for one week. Um, and yeah, it happens every year and it's limited to 60 people from around the world. And the one in London is focused on growth, um, whereas the other ones in Harvard and MIT have got different focuses, but London week is focused on growth. Um, and it's it's all case study learning. So, which I, I mean, you know, it's a long time ago since I did any real kind of university learning, but um, so this, this case study learning, so that, that you know, that they'd sent out a whole bunch of information, you know, you read before you get there, and then you put into these groups of five or six people, little forums, and then, and they're real cases. So you have to work out um, what you would do in these business situations, and then, and then they'd give you a bit more information, and then you decide again, what the next step would be. So as an example, on the first day, we had this case of a guy who kind of started a similar business to Airbnb in Spain, and um, and he was he someone offered to buy his business, and so um, yeah, so we went through the process of that. But little did we know he was actually in the room. So um, we were talking about him and saying, "Oh, we'd do this, and why did he do that, and all the rest of it." And he was kind of pretending to be one of us um, because it was the first day. We didn't really know everyone, and um, and then after we'd all decided what he should have done, then they roll him down, you know, out of the uh, out of the crowd and, and then he's and then he's there to be interviewed by us to kind of tell us what and why and how he did it and what happened in the end um, we also did a case study on pandora the bracelet um, company um, and how they raised money and how they or no sorry they didn't raise money how they bought in a c-suite of executives because that, they were making so much money they didn't have any problem with cash or profit but they had no experience at running a company that was that scale so um, and they ended up floating as well so um, stock exchange so you know that so the idea of the london business school was really about if your business is growing your options are you know you can sell um like a trade sale to another competitor you, you know you can sell by ipo you know you could bring in executives to kind of help you you could raise money you know private equity type thing so it was running through all those different options and then sort of but looking at it from a real world example of how pe other people had done it and what happened and how we would have made the decisions or what's critical to making those decisions. Um, yeah, so it's a pretty amazing week. And um, and these business owners from around the world, you know, we are obviously quite small in New Zealand. Um, but, you know, in, in India, to be a member of EO, you have to turn over 50 million US. So, you know, you've got guys um, in the room that, you know, have got some pretty big businesses. Um, you know, one of the guys in my group uh, owned a steel company in, in Indonesia, which was sort of... 
um, produced, you know, 20% of the steel in Indonesia or something, um, second generation. So you've got these pretty experienced people and all around the world. And, and obviously, you, you know, it's, it's about meeting all those people as well and interacting with them. And, um, and, and I, so, yeah, and you can go back each week and uh, each year. And I tried to go back um, the following year, uh, but that was just when COVID sort of started and I sort of chickened out um, and didn't go to London, but but they did run it, but it wasn't it wasn't quite as simple as the year before. But um, it's certainly it's certainly pretty amazing, um, and to to sort of see and be part of that London Business School, um, yeah, and sort of still I still have some contacts from there, and um, and you know all that sort of learning about how to apply that um, that growth options options for growth to the business, um, yeah. So with that, with the, the headspace, I'm, I'm interested, Gary, the the dynamics in that room where you've got a bunch of open minds that are there for, for a solution for, for something, is that, I'm imagining you probably hadn't been in a room like that before, but also the perspectives of those that are in the room uh, are probably at you know, a higher level than most average people, you just run a little bakery down the store or whatever, all of a sudden if you've got these you know magnates that are probably turn over you know, a couple hundred million dollars here and there, and just the, did the energy feel like such a perspective shift of scale because you were in the room with brains that were i guess dealing with way bigger stuff on a day-to-day -day basis like what was that what was the the creative flow like within all of that when everyone's with it was it with a good intent with no ego but there for something better than itself like that never usually happens in business so i'm imagining that would have been incredible yeah i mean i think eo it's worth mentioning EO in that in this context as a bit of a plug as well. And I'm I'm actually on the board of the New Zealand board of EO this year, and I'm looking after the accelerator group, which is a group of people that are trying to grow their businesses to get into EO. So if anyone's interested in that, you know, we we definitely want more people in that group, you know, especially in New Zealand to grow businesses. Um, but but with EO, it's it's this weird situation where you have this. Um, immediate sort of openness um there's there's no and, and this is at any event right so it, it could be there it could be at anything but you know that everybody knows you're speaking confidentially you 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 know that everybody has the same sort of um understanding and rules and, and kind of in the cult they're coming from the same angle you know and so you you know i, I went to this university and i was going down the lift and i learned more about this guy in the lift than i know about you know whole bunch of people that I've known for years, right? Because you can just immediately have that that conversation that's at a higher level. And so yeah, so if you multiply that out, obviously, that's that's massive. You know, everybody's there is is um in London was, you know, equal, you know, there's no there's none of that sort of hierarchical thing. Um and everybody's open to kind of communicating and connecting and, and sharing their experiences, which is what the whole thing's about, you know. And so yeah, definitely there was some very, very cool conversations about what people have done, what they think, how they think about it, um, yeah, and what they're going to take back, you know, to their to their businesses and and sort of uh, where they're going to go to from there. Um, so yeah, definitely a high level of of thought, um, and hence why I wanted to go back, but never quite no, got there. But um, I, well, hopefully, yeah. hopefully next year. So you're talking about before we came on here, um, P H O. What is PHO? Yeah. And let, let's get into that because I, I think it's pretty. Obviously, you've got a passion around having a bunch of different Kiwis get into get into first homes. You've 
been in the game for obviously a minute and, and see it differently, but this is a little bit special to you. So I'm interested just to dig into the, what is PHO and how does it, um, how does it roll? Yeah. So this is, um, uh, a government initiative from the ministry of housing and urban development to help people into houses basically. Um, so progressive home ownership, um, and there's a number of providers that have been around for a while, like, um, Habitat for Humanity is, is one of the partners that has got, um, some government funding. Um, Housing Foundation, which does a great job um, of, you know, helping people into houses. And, the, but the biggest one that's probably most um, heavily promoted is Kaying Aura, which is the government housing where they also provide equity. So it's basically a shared equity program. So, you know, they can come along and help people get into the house to buy a house. Money is interest free. Um, and it's tagged to the value of the house. So if the house doubles, you have to pay back a, a double of the amount that you've been, you know, that they put in. Um, but it's really to help people get in and get on on the ladder and then, you know, and then hopefully, you know, pay that back. That You can buy it out as you go or you can wait till when you move. Um, and then you use that to kind of springboard into the next opportunity. So, yeah, so I, I'm working with a, a friend of mine. We've set up a new entity uh, Te Tamata, it's called, which is uh, the beginning of the start. Um, and we are, we've been invited by um, by the government to submit, which we have done, uh, to, you know, get some funding to set up um, one of these PHOs that's going to be specifically focused on Māori, Pacifica and families with children, um, pathway to home ownership. So, um, so we're, we're, you know, we're feeling... Um, pretty positive about that and we're hoping that we'll have that sort of sorted in the next little while and then we're going to be able to go out there and find um, through various partners really um, people that want to get on board um, you know we'll have part of that will be financial literacy and assistance kind of on that level and then you know getting people into housing then we'll also look after them every year by you know making sure that they're you know they're on the right track and then eventually they can either buy us out um, or, um, you know, when they sell the home, that money comes back and then we have to pay that back to the government. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's, I think the government's put about $750 million aside in total for this, um, you know, not for us, but for uh, all the different players. And, um, yeah, so we're pretty excited and we think there's a real, you know, there's a real need for that. And um, we, we really want to show that um, as a, as an industry or sort of as a experienced player in the industry, we can actually, you know, really deliver and do, you know, do a good job of this and, and at pace because there's sort of no point, you know, saying something and then five years later, someone's in one house or something. We want to really deliver, you know, our goal is 150 people in the first two years. Um, and so that's, that's sort of what we're, saying we can do and and you know we're going to build systems and processes and what have you to to enable us to do that and and we, we've got to go through a bit of a selection criteria to select the right people we we don't want to set people up to fail um but you know we think it, it will be a great um it'll be a great story to be able to tell that you know that we helped these people and and we'll, we'll set up for you know for 15 years to sit beside them for that period um until you know until they move from there or you know they buy us out it's super cool, Gary. Um, for those of you tuning in, this will be at live on Today FM, and I'm speaking with Gary Gordon, the Managing Director of Solution Street. I'm interested to know, Gary, 
you've been in the real estate game for longer than most, right? What is one thing you feel that you really wish more Kiwis would know that they just don't know when it comes to real estate? Um, mm. Yeah, I, I don't know. I suppose we've sort of covered the emotional sides of property and the benefits outside of the value, which I think is, is probably our big one. Um, yeah, I, I suppose, you know, we've always, we, we've done a lot of things over those years, but, you know, one of the things we've, we've always joked about is people always come in and want to build a bigger house, you know, or have a bigger home than their friends or their neighbours or whatever, you know, people used to come in and say, oh, I've got this amount of money, how big a house can I build, you know, and you'd be like, well, why don't you want to build a good house rather than, or a great house rather than a big house, you know, like, so there, there was that, I don't know if that exists so much now, but we used to do sort of house and land kind of deals and various places. And and that was one of the things that really surprised us, you know, that people always focused on bigger, not necessarily better. And, you know, and obviously with, with nowadays with, you know, environmental, you know, we, we build all of our houses to Homestar 6, which is a green building council standard, which is better than the building code, you know, so we, um, you know, so wouldn't you be better maybe cutting off that study or that fifth bedroom and maybe putting that money into some solar panels or something that might provide you some, you know, some other benefits. But yeah, that, that's probably one thing that I've seen through the years is everyone's very focused. Um, and, and, and you see Fletcher's right now, you know, Fletcher's latest campaign is, you know, that they're actually saying it's it's not about how many, you know, there's something along the lines of, it's not about how many square meters your house is or your land is. It's, you know, it's about your community or your, you know, your, how you're living or whatever i can't exactly remember the way they say it but they're trying to also you know divert people away from thinking you know i need x square meters of house because that's what my mate johnny's got and i want to be bigger than him sort of thing um i don't know if that's so, i don't know if that's the number one thing but there's certainly one that comes to mind which is always a bit of a chuckle for us um but on that yeah. gary do you think that's driven by is that is that is that purely an insecurity and ego thing of like this is like how big can I get it? Like it, it becomes a, f a flex, this kind of like physical flex of being able to do it because it's as big. It's not like you know, in, in a, it's a very American thing because here in America, <laughs> America is yeah. very much how big, bigger is better in America and my country. It's very much that I get that, but. It must be, you know, to your point, because we're both laughing about it, almost humorous when Kiwis are trying to play that same game of, it's not even necessarily the Joneses, but it's weird how even the psychology, because this becomes this, this massive thing of, of, of home ownership, it goes to the the little flex of how big can I make it? Oh, yeah, I want a fifth bedroom. I want a, you know, I want a, a, a man cave. Yeah, or whatever the, whatever the thing is. Yeah, is a, there something to that? We had a great story once where, with this guy, you know that these people were building a house they had 50 grand and we were building them a million dollar house and land and um you know in those days you could kind of do that on five percent and um and he got this guy got a bonus and um he came to us and he said oh look i've got this 30k bonus or whatever he's like well you know i want to upgrade the sound system or you know whatever in the house the tvs and stuff we're like well we, you've got 50 grand and you, you buying this whole house and you've got like this other 30 should you put it on your mortgage? And he's like, no, I want to, I want to have the, I want to have the, the bigger TV and the bigger sound system in the house, which kind of seemed a bit backwards. But anyway, I mean, that's sort of, you know, I suppose people on the same lines, people sort of, well, a lot of people will spend as much as they can borrow. That's the other thing we used to see. 
So it's like, how much can I borrow? That's how much I want to spend. It's like, well, that's, that may not be a good strategy either, you know? And, and then they'll build it as big as they can, you know? So you're kind of chasing it, you know? So how much can I borrow? You know, how much can I build? It's like, okay, well, you know, what do you actually need? You know, what are you doing this for? What's the purpose of this? Maybe we should start with that. So, yeah, and I, 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 I do wonder if it's a generational thing. Like I do feel some of our younger buyers, they're not so, you know, they do appreciate, you know, that they don't want to have land or big house or, you know, that, you can get quality without size and you know so i think it maybe will change over time but there certainly was a period of time for a certain demographic that that was kind of their that was their thinking um, the, the flex and, and generationally it feels you know as you get more into more sustainability more people thinking consciously of, of space and emissions and how they what they put into the world it definitely feels that that is uh, that is changing before we go gary i'm interested to sort of know when you think of um housing and homes in Aotearoa and we let's go 20 20 years out unitary plans cranking everything sort of rolling along what, what do you think the state of housing in Aotearoa looks like in 2040 yeah well I think we're sort of on the right path um you know and it will be um it's a lot about transport location you know and size I think probably you know these sort of the idea of the 15 minute sort of walkable city is sort of where, you know, where you can actually live, maybe not without your car entirely, but certainly, you know, you can walk and cycle to decent transport. Um, well, I'm, spe I'm speaking probably here about Auckland more specifically than New Zealand. Um, but yeah, we are seeing all of that stock now, you know, that it is starting to come through the, the new stock, the new quality. And we are, you know, every time we're doing something, we're removing it. You know one of those mouldy houses i was talking about and and taking away that bad stock so you will see that coming through i think one of the challenges we've got is definitely around density height and apartments you know so you know this the the new um uh, density that the government has sort of um placed or forced on all the tier one councils has required them to kind of upscale all the density within a you know walkable catchment of the of the suburbs uh, of you know the decent uh, little towns so that means six levels um and so you you've kind of got this forever ongoing nimby kind of situation where you know one day some time ago my house probably was next to a farm you know here in takapuna um and so that was quite extreme you know farm house well that's quite extreme now you're going to have six stories next to a house and that seems quite extreme as well but it's sort of it's sort of the same as what's gone on forever. It's just a slightly different, you know, view on the progression of of kind of the way that the city's changing. Um, so we are going to have a lot of that discussion. You're going to see people, you know, who have maybe had their light or sun or some other view or whatever um, taken, and that, that's going to be very topical over the next five years, probably. Um, yeah, beyond that, probably everyone will start to get used to that um a lot of it probably comes down to how many people come to new zealand as well you know it's still a great place to live so you know we are down in a great little corner of the world so there's going to be I, I still think there's going to be plenty of people in the world that want to come here and we are eventually going to have that that demand on um you know on immigration and so you know that's going to put pressure back on the city um particularly in auckland to to sort of do that 
Um, but, you know, we have been thinking about the future of housing and, and, you know, is there a sort of, is there some magical model out there, you know, the, the housing as a service type situation, you know, you can, you know, I, I, I went and bought a Tesla um, because I wanted to understand what technology, car technology, what effect that was going to have on housing, right? Because if my car drives itself, why do I need a driveway? Why do I need a garage? Or why do I need a car park at all? You know, um, and those sorts of things are, you know, on, but in the meantime, I've got an electric car that needs plugged in. So how does that work? You know, I need that. So, you know, so that there's, we've, tr you know, we're trying to look at how all these things are going to affect um, the future. And, you know, like there's, you know, we've built developments not so recently that don't have ability to charge the cars, but, you know, so how's that, how's that going to be remedied, you know, with body corporates or, you know, other bits of way lands are structured. So yeah, there's quite a few, there's, there is quite a few challenges as well um, to kind of get to that position. Um, but, but I think it is primarily around transport um, because we've never really got to that point in, in Auckland or anywhere in New Zealand where you can really have a proper life where you just jump on the subway and, and you're in Brooklyn or whatever. So, you know, and that, you know, and we've all been there and done that and you can see what it's like when it's like that. You, you, you know, you don't even think twice. You're just on a bus or a subway or a tram or whatever it is and you're on the other side of, you're off the island and you're on another, you know, place. We haven't got anything like that. So, you know, hopefully that's going to happen um, with CRL. Hope, you know, we'll see development around that, around the city in Auckland, and then we'll see, you know, hopefully other train or bus kind of um, transport that will, you know, you'll see a corridor between uh, between the city and, and the airport, wherever that ends up, um, you know, you'll see a whole bunch of development around that transport orientated developments where you can just, you can actually work in the city or at the airport and be there in five or 10 minutes um, because you're on a, well, maybe not five, 10 minutes, maybe 15 or 20 minutes because you're on a, a transport, you know, um, line, which at the moment's pretty, yeah, I mean, the, the buses are good, but, you know, I think, I think, yeah, I think it's going to be around that myself, um, but then the actual housing, um, yeah, it's hard to see what the technology will actually come through um, and how that will transport what we do. Um, yeah, I mean, places, things like, um, I suppose Uber Eats are already changing things like that, you know, um, how you get food delivered, do you need such a big kitchen or, you know, those types of things in the future, um, you know, how you get everything delivered, in fact, is already, you know, already looking, you know, there's obviously parcel systems and all that kind of thing to kind of get everything to you or food deliveries or, you know, all that kind of stuff is those types of technologies are kind of having an effect, like I was talking about the cars, those are kind of having an effect on how we have to think about how housing sort of integrates with all that technology. There's a whole bunch of that. Well, just the, uh, the intersection of when you have technology with housing and people over time and generations and everything when it goes into once, it, it's not just like you build it for today and it's fit for today. It needs to be able to go for the next 50 years. And then when you add infrastructure on top of it, what does that look like? It's that forward thinking thing. Um, I really appreciate you joining us on the show, uh, Gary, for the first first big mainstream interview definitely appreciate it. hopefully you've enjoyed it and I've, I've definitely loved having a chat and learning a whole bunch more about it and i think even just when people are thinking of their houses to start with too realizing that you know the it's it's more than a transaction and then when there's ways of being able to work with people that you know give more of a shit than than other people definitely engage with them and i like it how you've got the long game as well with it too but i definitely appreciate your time and um, best of luck for everything in the future man awesome great thank you very much it's been a pleasure 
And there you have it, Gary Gordon, Managing Director at Solution Street. You know, this hearing how this whole thing plays out, I'm intrigued for this intersection of how the planning that we need to do today in terms of infrastructure is going to cross over with technology and movement and logistics. And there's so many, the formula of trying to make this thing work for many, obviously probably mainly talking about Auckland because, you know, with the new unitary plan and trying to build up and, and all that stuff, it's it, it requires more of a long-term view and approach to it. And I really like the idea that, you know, most with Gary anyway, with Solution Street, they're more relationship-based and partnerships, definitely not as transactional. And in, in an uh, ecosystem where so many people are very transactional with it, that was kind of cool. This idea of housing as a service, what, what does that look like, you know? Um, and, and also thinking about how people need to prioritize these important things in their life. You know, he's saying when you're young, really starting to, th to think about and talk about, you know, do you get KiwiSaver when you're starting at, you know, at your first little job at 15 or 16 or whatever it may be. Um, I'm intrigued to see how this, this, this sh uh, shakes out in the next, you know, 10, 20, 30 years. We've got transportation, location becoming key. There's just... There's a lot of moving parts and it makes me, you know, you start to think about the practical logistics of something this massive for a massive city of a million people. It potentially gets, starts to get pretty overwhelming pretty fast. So big ups to everyone who exists and works in this world. It is a lot. Well done to you all. And it is not an easy process, but I was stoked to be able to learn a little bit more about the real estate game thanks to Gary Gordon. Don't forget you can download the uh, Rover app on your smartphones to get out and about so you can go on your on your walks or your yogs. Well, yogs is jogging, but yogging. I call it yogging. It's the fancy way of yogging. Um, and if you are just on any of the other devices, you can just simply search in for hashtag Rebecca Live on, and you'll get that there for today FM. All right, before we leave, I'll give one more little uh, little word of advice. And this comes from uh, my mum. She gave me this little book. And then in the book, there's lots of different little sayings. And here's today one. Um, okay. Hardship limits our options and forces us to focus on survival. But prosperity can complicate life by increasing perceived needs and testing our integrity. Walking on wire is always harder than standing in a storm. Huh. Walking on wire is always harder than standing. I would, I would agree. Perceived it. Jeez, all right. I'll leave you with that one. Enjoy the rest of the day, team. Much love. See you soon. Peace.